Welcome to episode 38 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, S.J. Jones, called J.J. I'm an author and erstwhile editor. And I am your co-host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a contracts manager and a freelance editor. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. And today we are going to talk about submissions which is a little bit of a continuation of our last episode, which was about rejections. Mm-hmm. Um, and this one, we wanted to get a little bit more specific about uh, submissions process and the rejections you might see at that level, just why it takes so long <laughs> for books to get acquired and why it seems so arbitrary. So just I'm going to give you, I'm going to pull back the curtain a little bit about the acquisitions process and the decisions that would probably go in to whether or not a publishing house wants is going to acquire your book. So you're going to have to forgive me. I am in a little bit of a post-vacation haze. So I'm like kind of sleep deprived and I have a massive Hamilton hangover, which we could talk about later. Um, mm-hmm. but so I'm just like trying to collect my thoughts here. Yeah. And I am recording in my living room. Normally I record in my bedroom, but I'm in my living room today. And so I'm sure there's going to be all kinds of weird ambient noises that there normally aren't. It's like 101 degrees here right now and we have no air conditioning in my apartment. So this is <laughs> just bear with us this week, you guys. Yeah. You know, we, we do this for love and not money. So, uh, mm-hmm. you know, this is our... This is this is what it's like when you podcast. Okay, so submissions. Um, I'm trying to think of how we do get a lot. I see a lot of questions anyway when I talk to writers who are on submission. So we did a, a previous series, uh, previous episode about this particular topic. Actually, um, it, our publishing 101 series about submissions and acquisitions, and. Since then, I've kind of had people ask me or people talk about being on submission. And I mentioned in that previous episode that submission seems a little bit more mysterious than querying because there's this weird, not weird, but, you know, you're not allowed to talk about it as freely. And it's not even that you're not allowed to talk about submission as freely as a writer. It's just that everyone's submission story is so different that it's hard to talk about it openly because everyone's situation is so unique. Um, so I think probably the best way to go about it is to explain the submission ed board process. So in, in our rejections episode, we talked about how every decision in publishing is made by committee. Absolutely every decision. Um, including acquisitions, including titles and, and covers and marketing plans, like everything is made by committee. And that first committee decision comes when an editor decides that they want to try and acquire a book. So presumably you've been on submission now for a couple months and people are always asking, why is there silence? Why haven't I heard back? You know, why is this taking so long? And to be completely honest, no news is no news when you're on submission. It's neither good nor bad. It just means that there is no news. And I know 
many of us writers tend to be a little bit more neurotic and, you know, we can't help obsessing about what does this mean? What does any of this mean? Uh, but the honest truth is that being on submission, when you don't hear anything, it just means likely that the editor has not had time to get to your manuscript and therefore no decisions can be made. Now, there is a little bit of a hierarchy of submissions that come in. Mm-hmm. Generally, the ones that already have offers on them get pushed to the top. They're the ones that are the most time sensitive. So, you know, I, I as I said, always tried to be fairly equitable when it came to my submissions. Like, I would log the date that they came in from the agent, and I would try and get to them in chronological order. But if I receive something from an agent and a week later the agent comes back to me and says, look, we have an offer on this, then that is liable to bump that manuscript up on my list to read because just there's interest in it. It's just any any other business that's like that. So, you know, this submissions process, I've heard, I mean, when I was on submission two years ago, um, it was about six months between when I went on submission until what until I got an offer. I have heard kind of from other writers that it's just a lot longer now to hear about anything, to hear any word from editorial houses or their agent about being on submission. Now, part of that is, I think, due to the fact that we're in summer right now. Mm-hmm. And I think we've mentioned before that summer is pretty slow in publishing. Yeah, I mean... Considering that New York is still the central hub of the publishing industry and that New York has summer hours where on Fridays um, most publishing establishments close down at a half day so people can take off for the weekend. Um, Yeah, New York City in the summer is really a brutal place to be and so everyone tends to leave for as long as they can. Yep. (laughs) And this includes a lot of people in positions of power who have like summer homes in the Hamptons or elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Um, And so everything in the summer in New York just slows way down either because you know, you're on vacation or your boss is on vacation or you know, you're only in there for half a day or it's just hot and you know, it's hard to focus when it's really hot. Yeah, it's not, it may not be that the editor hasn't read your manuscript. It may just be that the person who is able to authorize the money mm-hmm. isn't around and hasn't read it yet. And so that, all of that sort of just adds more and more time. And I know that's, that sucks, right? If you're the one waiting for news or waiting for information, that sucks. I mean, I, I, I was on submission over the summer, so I understand. Um, but I've also been on the other side trying to acquire. So I guess before we kind of continue a little bit about publishing, I want to talk about who authorizes the money. <laughs> because the editor does not have the power to just be like, I want to buy this. They, yeah, the, there's, so there are different positions in a publishing house. There, mm-hmm. there are editors, there are marketers, there are salespeople, but there's an actual position called publisher. And the position of publisher, I don't know if it necessarily has an equivalent in any other industry, <laughs> um, but the publisher is basically the person who makes business decisions. They are sort of 
they're the person, they're like mom and dad. That's what we always kind of called them. Like we call them the grownups, my other colleagues and I, because they're the ones that give you the money. You're like, mom, can I have some money to go see a movie with my friends? Um, it's a little bit like that when you're an editor, you kind of go to your publisher and you're like, Hey, can I have some money to buy this book? Um, so they're the ones that are able to authorize the money. Most publishers, well, I guess it's sort of split. Some publishers do, in, in fact, are also editors in that they have their own list. Um, mm-hmm. And some publishers are just that. They're just publishers. They only make the business decisions for their imprint. Um, I don't know, Kelly, What do you have anything to add about this particular position? Not necessarily about the publishing the, the position of the publisher, um, but also that in sometimes in smaller presses, um, things work a little bit differently in that the imprint or the editor specifically will sometimes be given a specific budget. They'll be given, here's mm-hmm. your budget for the entire catalog, and here's how many books we expect you to acquire for the catalog. And then as long as you don't go over that budget, you can distribute it however you see fit among the books that you're supposed to acquire, but they need you to acquire X amount of books. And that usually, that will never happen at bigger houses, but at um, some smaller publishing houses, um, I do know that it does tend to work that way when there's less money involved overall and the catalogs are always really consistent. um, and, And usually, you know, there's only one editor per imprint. And so everybody is really aware of what's going on company-wide anyway. At the bigger houses, it's really hard to know necessarily where all the money is going, and so it's really important to have one person oversee all of that Mm -hmm. and approve budgets. Um, So, yeah. Yeah, we had... So the first half, I've mentioned this before, and at least the editorial meetings that I've attended, there's a first half, which is where the editors bring up the projects they want to acquire, and then second half, which is money. Um, the second half is also where our CFO, the chief financial officer of the imprint also came and because his signature was required to authorize being able to spend this money. Uh Um, so the position of a publisher, I do want to talk about it a little bit. So there's, and generally a bigger imprint will have an editor in chief and, uh, sometimes several publishers, um, you know, there's a executive publishers, there's kind of the publisher of, an, of a whole imprint, and there's sort of associate-level publishers. And these are the business people. These are the people that are making the money decisions. So an editor-in-chief, usually you need an editor-in-chief signature as well in order to be able to acquire a book. An editor-in-chief generally will be overseeing the editorial direction of your imprint. So, you know, often the, the said editor will editor in chief will make a decision does this book fit in with the brand quote unquote with the brand of our imprint of the other books that we publish in this imprint is this kind of way out of left field will be will we be able to do it so they're kind of responsible for the overall tone and the voice um sort of from an editorial or content side and then the publisher is responsible for the business direction of the imprint. So they're going to look at the whole list and see which books are doing well, which books are not doing well, and kind of making decisions based on that. Like, my particular, at the the house that I worked at, was not f- 
focused just on children's or mysteries. It kind of did a lot of whatever they considered commercial. So they would look at the list as a whole and see what was doing well, what was not doing well, and what wasn't doing well, you know, you know, if you brought up a project, say, well, I'll just bring up the dystopian example again. So say I'm trying to bring up a dystopian novel, and the publisher is like, well, you know, the last two dystopian novels we did didn't quite do so well for the money that we spent, you know, so either maybe we're going to spend a lot less on this particular title if we think it's, you know, worth publishing or, or like, worth spending our money on. It's not that books aren't worth publishing, it's but for a publisher, they have to sort of weigh whether or not the mm-hmm. cost outweighs the returns. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so all of this is kind of the obstacles, I guess, a book will have to overcome in order to get acquired in the first place. So you often hear this, and not often, but you'll sometimes hear this from authors who said, oh, my book went to Edboard or Acquisitions, but got shot down. The decisions about whether or not to turn a book down at the acquisitions level are consist of a multitude of factors, some of which I laid mm-hmm. out before you. You know, we did books like this and it didn't work well for us. Um, and it could just be that people don't get it. You know, you have mm-hmm. to do so much convincing when you're an editor, when you bring up a book that you love, and maybe it's a small niche book, but you really love the writing and you really, you know, want to take a chance on it. An editor has to go into an editorial meeting with with the most persuasive arguments about why someone, why the publisher t- should take a risk on this uh-huh. particular title. Because there is no surefire hit. There's no guarantee, no matter how commercial an idea might be, no matter how many endorsements a book comes preloaded with, there's no guarantee that a book will make actually make you money. Especially if you spend a lot of money on it. So, going into acquisitions, you know, say, okay, so I'm the editor, and I have a little book from my, from an agent that I really love, and I really want to try and buy it. The first thing I would do is send it around to my colleagues for, for reads. So, other editors. So, this is another reason why it takes so long for editors to get back to you, is because in addition to doing their own submission reading, they're submission reading for other people. Mm-hmm. But they're sending it out to different people for second opinions. You know, do you also like this book? You know, what do you think about it? Do you think that we can acquire it? And it's kind of an opportunity for you to talk to your colleagues about, uh, about this book. Because as I said, every decision is made by committee. In addition to sending it out to your colleagues for second reads, you usually have to send it to your publisher and your editor-in-chief. And maybe if you can, get a marketing person to read your book as well. Or, and depending on what kind of book it is, you may also want to get sales to read it. Um, especially if the sort of book that you're trying to acquire is like something that would be appropriate for special markets, you know, like something that you would find in like Urban Outfitters. You want to kind of get sales opinions on it because they would have the numbers of what, how many copies of books like these kind of sell. So, first of all, you're coming into editorial board with at least five other people's five other people's opinions on the book that you're reading. And remember, everyone has to come uh, come to a consensus about the book. This is why 
I always, I, this is why I used to say that publishing, my memoir about my time in publishing is called Required Drinking or Every Step of This Process is the Worst. So you go in there and say your editor-in-chief likes it, but your publisher doesn't know whether or not you should take a risk on it because previous books like it didn't do well, or you've never published a book like this before, so you don't even know where to begin, about how to market it, what the audience is supposed to be. So, you, you know, and, and maybe some of your colleagues like the book and some of them are more lukewarm about it. It is... You, as the editor, now have to gauge the room and gauge, is this worth fighting for, essentially? Because, as I said, every step of the process is the worst. Every single decision in the future is going to be made like this. You're going to have to ask your your boss. You're going to have to ask your editor-in-chief. You're going to have to ask your publisher about every decision and your publisher is in on every decision usually you know they're in on, they're in on the cover meetings they're in on the marketing meetings they're you know often the publisher will weigh in on titles and things like that so you're in a room and you have this project that is getting some raves on one side and some lukewarm maybes on another side and an I don't know from your publisher you kind of have to sit there and consider is this worth the emotional investment I'm going to put into this book? And often, because it because publishing is such a hard business, the editor will probably, unless it's unless they love it so much that they would like die if they couldn't work on it, then they're probably going to reject the title at this point. This is probably the worst rejection to get in that. You've made it all the way to acquisitions, and then you get the rejection. You know, we're going to pass because we didn't love it enough. Um, and the honest truth is, you know, like, because a lot of people want, at this point, they want constructive criticism. What can I do better in my book? What can I revise? What can I, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But honestly, most of the time, rejections at this stage or really at any stage in the in in acquisitions at any of the big five is I did not love this book enough to fight for it. How's that for a downer? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's so much emotional work that goes into trying to buy a book. So I didn't love it enough. It doesn't mean that the book is bad. It doesn't mean that it's not worthy. It's not mean that somebody else won't publish it in the future. It's just that this particular editor, the consensus at editorial board, was not a resounding hit. So they're probably likely going to have to pass. Oh, I know it sucks, but <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you should you should be good cop, Kelly, because I'm gonna just be bad cop all over this episode because I'm just like here's I the truth. Know. Nobody likes it. Not nobody likes it, but just it's just too tiring to fight for it. So I'm gonna let it go. I know, I know. Yeah, I mean uh, that I think too ties in very nicely with a lot of the things that we said about rejection on last 
well, not last week, but our previous podcast, our most recent podcast before this. And that is, you know, that it's not personal, that it's business, that there's a lot of factors that go into making those decisions. Um, other reasons why submissions take so long, because we talked about how, you know, books that are gaining interest from other houses get bumped up to the top. Um, you know, then we try to read things in chronological order most of the time. But also, if you have manuscripts coming in for books that are already contracted, if, you know, it's book two in a series or book three in a series, you're going to read those first most of the time because yeah. you're already working with those authors and working on them. So if a contracted manuscript comes in, that's usually going to get to the top of the list first as well. So there's... You know, the the list of submissions that an editor is going to be reading at any given time is really fluid and can change frequently. And all of those things can impact the length of your wait to hear back from uh, any editors. And then, of course, you know, we, we go on submissions in rounds, right? You know, just the same way as when you query for an agent. You know, you make your list of the, you know, top agents that you want and you query them. And if you don't get a bite, you make a list of your next, you know, tier of agents and so on and so forth. Agents do the exact same thing mm -hmm. when submitting your manuscript to editors. Um, so there's, you know, tier one. And if nobody bites, then there's tier two. And so... You know, at some point you have to think of it too, is you're just continually starting the process over again. Yes. <laughs> you know, you like you're you're back to square one. So once, you know, you get your first round of rejections and you send out to your next level of editors, then you have to find a slot on their ever shifting manuscript reading lists and you know, it gets sorted out all over again and the process begins anew. And so the thing about submissions, much like querying, is that it is slow, it takes a long time, it takes a long time with little to no feedback, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, you can't, you, you, as long as you're waiting, as long as you're in that list waiting for your manuscript to be read, there's no updates, and there's not much you can do to get Updates At a certain point, maybe after like three months, maybe, an agent may send an email saying, hey, you know, just checking in on this. I sent this to you. You know, what are you thinking? And kind of nudge editors in that way. But again, you can't do that every week. That's a, something that you do, you know, only when it's been quite a long time and you're just kind of checking in and waiting. And so it, that is the thing I think that drives people out of their minds with submission is that you just you don't know where you stand mm -hmm. and there's really no way to find out where you stand and it's complicated by the fact as you said JJ that it's not something that people talk about as freely because it doesn't feel like it's an even playing field querying is an even playing field anyone can write a novel anyone can write a query letter and anyone can send that query letter to an agent mm -hmm. But the tier of people who have agents and then go on submission is more selective. And so I think people feel that they can't be as open about that process. Mm -hmm. And so you kind of have to find other people who are in that situation with you and kind of commiserate privately. Mm -hmm. 
with other people. Is that something that you did? Because I remember, I remember when you were on submission (laughs) and (laughs) I remember, you know, getting G chats with you just being like, ah, I need to know what's going on, you know, but you're helpless. There's no way you can know. No. And so you're just stuck there. I went through periods because I went through a couple months. I'm not an anxious person. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't suffer from anxiety um, in general, like either as a, you know, as a mental health thing or just in general, I'm not somebody who gets anxious. And I remember I would go maybe like a month or two and I'd be fine. And then right around the two month mark, I'd just be like, why? There's no news. It's driving me nuts. I, and the thing is, I would rather have heard no just so I could put it to bed and move on. And that, that being in limbo is the worst part about being in submission. And unless other people are on submission with you, it's hard to kind of commiserate about what that feeling is. The The other reason I feel like it's hard to talk about submission openly is that there is, as Kelly said, querying is somewhat democratic. You know, everyone can write a novel, everyone can query. But submission is when you start to get a sense of what other the value or the worth other people assign your book. Mm-hmm. Now, when you are represented by an agent, like being represented by an agent is kind of the most optimistic part of publishing because the agent is taking on because they love your book and they love the potential and they want to see where this goes and it's all happy and everyone's forward looking and it's great. Publishing is when you start to get a sense of whether or not other people will be excited about your book. And I think that's kind of the unspoken dirty secret maybe about submission is that it is true that the quote hotter the property is the faster it goes at submission. So you've been on submission, you know, some there are some where you know it gets sold like overnight. You know, there are those like that. Um, and those are generally the quote hot properties. They come in either preloaded with another offer or a movie deal or whatever, right? Or the agent is the kind of agent that is able to drum up a lot of interest and money up front. Because some agents are, in fact, very good at this. Um, So those do go quickly. And so here you are, six months out, and you still haven't really had a nibble or a bite on your book. It starts to feel discouraging because you're a little bit like, well, I guess my book isn't, you know, people aren't as excited about my book as they are about other other books. And that's why it can be so crazy making. Because then you're just like, well, what is it about? What is it about my book that is lacking? And you're starting to compare yourself with people who aren't even published yet. And, you know, you start looking at the deal list for books that maybe have a similar premise to yours and already got sold. And there's all sorts of really terrible, disordered ways of thinking when you are on publishing or on submission. Um, I mean, I was lucky because I knew what the submission process was like. So even if my emotions were going haywire, the intellectual part of me was like, all right, you've been there. You know exactly what this is like, you know, so stop freaking out. That's why I went in waves. That's why I was like, sometimes it was fine. And then sometimes I was just like, oh, I'm going to tear my hair out. That's, so that's the other thing I want to talk about is 
when you've been on submission for a long time and what that means. What that means is a number of different things. Because as, as we said, we prioritize the ones that have offers ahead of everything else that comes along. Um, and reading and publishing anyway, you try to be as fair as you can, but you're actually going to read the ones that you're excited about first. So you may have a project that comes in a new desk that, you know, you like the idea, that you like the sound of, but then the next day another agent sends you a manuscript and the idea just strikes a chord with you on a much deeper level. You're probably actually going to read that first. Or at least that's what I did. So there's there's a confession for you. That's what I did. I, I actually, in addition to prioritizing based on previous interests or established interest. I also prioritize based on personal interest, like, do I want to read this book more than the other one? Then I'm going to read that book, because life is, again, too short to read every single book in the world. So you, so there's that, like, maybe your book is quiet and it just got lost in the shuffle of all these other more exciting books that came into this editor's list. There's also an issue of seniority in publishing. I think I mentioned before that publishing is a very old-fashioned business that you cannot start at an upper level in publishing. Everyone has to start at the entry level. It's like an apprenticeship. And those who have seniority in the industry get priority. So, and I came across this when I was a younger editor, is that just my books did not have priority on my publisher's list of things to read. So sometimes I would send something out for reads and, you know, a bunch of other people had also did it. The publisher will have to prioritize, you know, the executive editor, you know, the other editors, like basically people who are higher up than me, who have been in the in the industry longer than me, their reads get prioritized. So I may want to acquire a book, but I could be waiting on second reads for a long time because, you know, there's just other people ahead of me. And that seniority also exists for agents. So if I get a submission from an agent that I have not heard of, from an agency that I'm not familiar with, versus getting on the same day a submission from an agent that I'm already familiar with. We've either had lunch or I know their agency or their they have a, a name, you know, even if I've never actually met them, their work is also going to get prioritized. As we said, publishing is not a meritocracy. <laughs> um so a, a number of factors could be contributing to that fact that you're waiting for so long. The editor that you sent it to may be just less senior. Your agent that is sending it out may be just kind of starting out and building these contacts and therefore their their reads don't get prioritized. Um, so there's, there's like all these sort of intangible things that, intangible calculations that go on in an editor's mind when they are prioritizing what to read. The I yeah go ahead. oh no, go on go ahead 
Um, I was going to move on to kind of a different topic within submissions, which was going to be the end of the submission process when you get an offer. Yes. And I wanted to talk a little bit briefly because honestly, we could probably flesh this out into its own podcast, (laughs) but I wanted to talk a little bit briefly about how authors can make the decision whether or not to accept an offer. Because even if you only get one offer, then you still need to decide if it's the right offer for you and if it's the author offer that you want to accept. And if you have multiple offers, um, if you've got interest from two or three places that have all put offers forth, then you have to decide among them. And there's a couple of factors um, that I just want to mention briefly. And again, if you're agented, your agent will really help guide mm-hmm. you through this process and will point out the types of things that you should be um, interested in. I personally think an author should always have a conversation with an editor before accepting an offer. Mm-hmm. I think you should I think you should talk to your editor, whether over the phone or in an email, and get a sense of what your editor likes about your book, what they think the vision for your book is, um, and just so you can get a sense for them as a person, because much like your agent, um, your editor is someone with whom you're going to have a business relationship, but it's a really intimate business relationship, and it's someone that you want to work well with. I also think that... um, you know, the offer will be limited. You're not going to get a contract up front to look at to, you know, see whether or not you're going to get some basic offer details, um, you know, that will be incorporated into your contract. And you have to make your decision based on those few details. So money is certainly one. What is the advance? What is the royalty structure? And what are the rights, you know, world rights, North American only, whatever. And you have to weigh all those factors against each other. You might have an offer where you really click with the editor and you really think that editor understands you and your work, but is offering slightly less money than another house, which is offering a larger advance, but maybe you don't feel like the editor fully understands the direction that you you know, want your book to go in. Um, so it it's not as simple as taking the quote unquote best offer because an offer is composed of many different things. And it's important, I think, to look at them holistically yep. when making your decision. Yeah. I mean, as somebody who made an offer on a book and had the author go with a different house that actually offered <laughs> less money than oh. I did was kind of a little bit of a just ouch. Um, but it was, I mean, I understood the, mm-hmm. the, I mean, I had, a, I had a phone call with the author and, you know, we got along pretty well, but she clicked much better with the other one. And therefore that was the editor and the offer that she went with. And I don't fault her for it. You know, it's no. absolutely. She should have gone with the editor that had the best vision or understood her book. And because, and this is important for you when you're considering this because it's better to not be published at all than to be published badly. Yeah. And being published badly can comprise of a number of different things, but a very simple one, and that can happen at every kind of publisher, every level of publishing, is that the editor and the publisher misjudge misjudges the audience and market 
for your book. Mm-hmm. And that's an example of being published badly. Or maybe not badly, but maybe not being published to your full potential. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's a human failing. It's an right. industry run by people, and people make mistakes. Mm-hmm. So, And to be published badly and have you know, your audience misjudged or overlooked or just your publisher does not understand the market that you're trying to reach. These are all really important factors. Now, it's hard to do that if you've never been published before and you're an author and you're considering all these offers and you're like, oh, what do I choose? What do I do? I mean, again, as Kelly said, this is where your agent will come in and and sort of hopefully guide you uh, towards, you know, the best decision for you. But I think understanding you yourself, where you want your book to sit, how you want your book marketed or presented to the public really will be helpful to you in this instance. Because no book exists in a vacuum. No work of art exists in a vacuum. You cannot write a book and just be like, well, it's it's this vision. I have a singular vision and there's nothing like it on the market. That doesn't work. It just doesn't. I'm, you know, I wish I could say it does, but it, it no. And so you're going to have to see, okay, so readers of this book will probably like my book. And therefore, if my publisher were to market it like this title or go after the similar audience segment as this other title, like you, these are things that you should probably think about before you accept offers and if your publisher is on the same page as you. And often in an offer phone call, you will hear that. You'll talk to the editor in addition to all the editorial things that they want to discuss about your book with you. At least I did. I always kind of gave them an idea of where I saw this book, you know, what audience I was thinking of gearing this this book toward. Um, you know, this is where the cop title thing comes in again. Because the editor has to do this when they acquire it anyway. You know, when you bring a book up to Edward, you come up with five or six other titles that are that would probably hit a similar market. Look up their numbers and you use them as a, you know, as basically just kind of ammunition to try and, you know, bolster your argument that we should buy this book. So your editor will probably tell you. And if your editor, you know, say you think of your book as kind of a quirky contemporary romantic comedy in the vein of, I don't know, Jenny Han or Stephanie Perkins. And then the editor comes back and says, oh, you know, we think this is going to be kind of like darker and grittier, like a Jay Asher type of book. You probably know that this is going to be a mismatch. That they that they are not looking at your book the same way you are. And don't always assume that the publisher knows better than you. <laughs> Because you're still the final arbiter of the artistic direction of your book. You should be anyway. You're the one that wrote it. So Uh even if the publisher is giving you a convincing argument, if you don't agree with it, kind of on a gut level, then it may not be the best business decision to go with this particular publisher, even if they are offering you more money. So... And there are other things, if editorially there's no difference, then, you know, obviously if a publisher is like, well, we want to give you more money before more rights, or, you know, all sorts of other kind of other small calculations can go into it. But I think the more important decision is is what direction they think your book is going to go. Yeah. 
I'm trying to think, is there anything else about submission that I wanted to cover in this particular case? The money aspect of it. How a house comes in, how a house comes to a decision about how much money to offer on a project. So I think I mentioned in our last submissions podcast episode that there was something called a PNL, a profit and loss statement sheet. And this is something you usually come up that the CFO has come up with. And it's an Excel spreadsheet pre-populated with all sorts of different formulas and you're putting numbers in there. And those and and the royalty numbers and how many copies, etc. And that kind of spits back another number. But the the thing about this is that it is pretty much arbitrary because I may put in a number of what I think this book will sell for, and then another house may put in a different number, and therefore their number comes in at much higher than mine. And that's just that's because we are judging the market size for this book differently. And so don't necessarily be discouraged by the size of your offer if you think it's small or you think it's smaller than it's worth. Because you don't have any control over how much money your book is going to go for. I mean, everybody would love to have a six-figure deal and have it go at auction or anything like that, but that is not the case for most books. And the amount of money... And and ideally, you want a smaller advance because you want to be able to earn out sooner because that makes you a better investment for your publisher. So we did talk about this in our money up. We talked about this in our money episode. Kelly and I went into this pretty detailed in that, so we can put a link in our show notes to that about sort of the money considerations. But again, it kind of stings, I think, to get a smaller number than you expect because, again, this is an actual monetary worth being placed on your, on, your, on your work, on your writing. And, you know, if they think it's only worth, like, $700, $7,500, you're kind of like, well, what are they going to do with this? So, you know, I get that, too. And it's also you may want to hold out for more money just because you get an offer and it's a small amount and you think that they're misjudging your book or you think that they are underselling you then you may just you may also decline the offer and wait for something better again your agent should be better able to advise you on that cuz your agent will have a better read on on the situation across most publishing houses but you know don't again and then just go back to it is better to not be published at all than to be published badly. So, I think that's it for me. Yeah. All right. So, what are you reading? Nothing. Still? Yeah, no, I'm still kind of paging through Mist of Avalon at night when I can't sleep. But, uh, yeah, otherwise, no. No books. Mm Mm-mm. Yeah, I think I might take the whole summer off at this point. <laughs> <laughs> what about you? Uh, I finished My Lady Jane, which was just delightful. Uh, I listened to this on audiobook, 
and My Lady Jane, of course, being written by one of our pub crawl contributors, Jody Meadows. Um, I, I don't. I just finished. I finished it today, actually, and I just finished it with this huge grin on my face. It was. It hit all of my Princess Bride buttons, and it was, you know, just cute and funny and romantic, and um, so I, I really, really enjoyed that and really felt happy about it. So that, that was my most recent read. Um, still working my way through Beethoven. <laughs> and also I think as a, as a way to kind of give myself a break from research, I'm also going to start Roses and Rot by Cat Howard. Uh, this is, was pitched to me as kind of like a dark gothic fairy tale retelling of Tamlin, but with sisters. And I was like, well, this sounds exactly up my alley, so (laughs) (laughs) on my to be read list. So that, that's probably what I'm going to start next when I have time, because I don't really have time right now, as we can probably discuss in our next segment, which is what are you working on? Hmm. What are we working on? Um, I am working on my young adult novel progress, um, which obviously I have not turned into yet. No. But but I give you a pass. I was on vacation. It's true. <laughs> you were on vacation, and it was my birthday, and um, I finally uh, broke down and bought Scrivener. Yay. And Yep. And so um, I've been doing the tutorials on that and trying to get situated because it's very different than writing in Word, which is what I have done um, up for everything I've ever written up until now. Uh, but I, I do actually have some uh, words on the page, not very many, but uh, several Yay. hundred at this point. And right now, <laughs> I might as well just tell you this because I haven't told you yet. Right now, it's back to being in third person. Okay. I don't know why. It, it used to be in third person, and then the last couple drafts have all pretty consistently been in first, but um, I was sitting there staring, and I just I kept trying to write in first person, and I could not do it. Like, just nothing would come out, and then I switched to third person, and I wrote, like, 500 words. So I was like, okay, <laughs> I'll take it. So we'll see. I, I'm always fascinated and perplexed by that by selecting the proper voice or perspective to tell your story. Um, I mean, sometimes it's really clear, like, you know, if you, if you hear the character's voice in your head and you know, it has to be first person, then great. But clearly I'm not, (laughs) I'm not getting that right now. So yeah, Yeah, I will have to confess and winter song is in first person. So, um, but I will have to confess this. I d- did not, until pretty recently, did not like books in first person. Mm-hmm. I had a difficult time buying into the conceit of, why are you telling me this? <laughs> um, and I think part of that is because a lot of first person narration in the hands of maybe less practiced authors can just be... Either gimmicky or not, it doesn't add anything to the way the narrative is told. So, and not that I expect you know every book that I read to be this masterwork of craft or anything like that. But I had difficulty with the first person because to me, the natural POV to tell any story is third. 
that's what I that's how I write my long shitty synopsis is it's always in third even though Winter Song is in first that long initial because that's the storytelling voice right mm-hmm. once upon a time there was a baker and his daughter like it's kind of always in third person so to me that's like the natural voice to tell most stories in and then the conscious decision to move it into first I feel like should be a conscious decision it should be Yes, it should be told from this per- this particular character's point of view. Um, so yeah, I mean, go with go with whatever feels more natural at this point. You can always, I mean, it's going to be a lot of work if you change POV, but you can always do it. You can always change it later. So there's that. Anything else? No, just that. What about you? Um, well, book two. <laughs> <laughs> But I saw you tweeted that you had some ideas for it. So it seems like you're finally getting more energized about it. Yeah, of course, I didn't have my notebook on me at the time. Mm-hmm. So I had to, like, scribble it down on scratch paper and just, like, fold it and put it in my purse so I could remember when I got home. Um, I, I do have ideas about it. They're just kind of at that state in my head where they just haven't coalesced into anything yet. They're all just sort of there and kind of gradually solidifying into something but for me at least I can't really start a book until I kind of have a real clear sense of an of an emotional arc and I don't really have that yet Mm. I only know what happens but I don't know why it happens or how it happens so I'm, I'm actually waiting for the why I guess before I get started and it's there it's starting to come together and I'm starting to think about it um in the meantime, I'm just kind of tinkering away with those words. I'm mm-hmm. also doing promo for Winter Song. So I got my galleys, which I was super excited about. I went to New York, and I had uh, dinner with my editor, and she handed me a galley of Winter Song, which was super excited. So I am doing some extra stuff to give away with those. I am annotating my book, so I'm just going to kind of point out Places like this is where the scene came from, or this is where the inspiration came from. This is what I'm referencing here obliquely. So kind of, I I like that kind of thing. I love annotations. You know, it's like the director's commentary on movies, that kind of a thing. So I decided to do that. And <laughs> so I think I mentioned before that Winter Song was an adult title and is now a YA title. And one of the changes that happened when it went from adult to teen was severe editing of the sex scenes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they were they were very risque. <laughs> they, yeah, I didn't really think about it and then I reread them and I was like, "Wait, I'm getting kind of flustered and I know uh-huh. I wrote these." So it's uh-huh. like Yeah, uh, I re- when I read it I was like, Whew. <laughs> <sighs> So, um I'm still proud of the sex scenes that are in Winter Song currently, but I decided I was going to offer up the un- <laughs> unadulterated versions of those. So that's kind of what I'm working on, and because I'm mean, I like to make things overly complicated. I am also trying to research how to make a chapbook, because I don't want to just like print it out and like send it out to people. I wanted to make a, a nice little product that, you know, a little thing they can actually hold in their hands um so that's also what i'm working on in addition to book two but mostly i'm just letting book two kind of 
coalesce into a, a, a cohesive story before I start writing it completely or start wholly committing to it. And I hope that it happens soon because my book is due in October and that really only leaves me like two months <laughs> to write this book. So hurry up, brain. Hurry up. Uh, all right. So then, any off-menu recommendations? Oh, yes. <laughs> My off-recommendation, uh, off-menu recommendation, rather, this week is another podcast called Witch, Please, <laughs> which is an explicitly feminist academic criticism or critique of the Harry Potter novels and movies. Mm. It yes, it is hosted by two women, Marcel and Hannah. I believe they are Canadian, and they are. Um, I'm not sure precisely where in their academic journeys, but they work in academia, either professors or assistant professors or something. I, I can't re recall their exact credentials, um, but they are smart funny women and the podcast is great and is unlike any other Harry Potter literary analysis I've come across really Ooh. Mm -hmm. it is um, they don't really review the books you know they're, they're not they're going to assume that whoever is listening to their podcast is fully familiar with Harry Potter and the stories and the movies they do um, one episode focusing on the book and then another episode focusing on their the movie version of the same book. Although now that they've started to get into the longer books, um, sometimes they, they're splitting up into like instead of two podcasts, one for book, one for movie, there's like two of each because there's just so much more yeah. um, to unpack. They have things divided up into very specific segments um, and they are just really bringing up some really incredible things. They say outright that they are not going to be doing any, necessarily any research. So they're just applying um, feminist theory and queer theory and other literary um, theories to this work, but they're not doing any research necessarily ahead of time. They're looking at the text only the only thing mm -hmm. that matters is the source of the text and they're not bringing it in you know a lot of other things they talk a lot about the imagery they talk about characters and character development they talk about um you know the social constructs in the world they talk about race they talk about you know just anything that you can think of they talk about and it's all fascinating and interesting and super funny and I'm just like I am so in love with this podcast <laughs> It's like a podcast that I wish that I had started, only I know that I'm not, like, articulate and together enough to, like, have, you know, put this together. I just, I, I super crush on both of them. I love this podcast. I think it's wonderful. It is Witch Please. They're on Twitter at O-Witch-Please, O-H-W-I-T-C-H-P-L-E-A-S-E, um, and they're just great. They're just super, super great. So highly, highly recommended. Yay! I also love the name Witch Please. Right? That's right? Brilliant! I love <laughs> a good si pun. Their sign off <laughs> at the end of every show is Later Witches. <laughs> they have a whole segment called Granger Danger, which is devoted to how oh badass God. Hermione is. Oh my God, like, that's so amazing. 
Everything about it is just <laughs> phenomenal. I just, it's so good. <laughs> what about you? Do you have any off-menu recommendations? Yes, I have two off-menu recommendations this week. Um, the first one is also another podcast. So last week, as I mentioned, I was up in New York uh, to see Hamilton, but also like see my friends and family and everyone that lives there. Um, but I also stayed with my friend Sarah Lemon, who's also an author, and her book Done Dirt Cheap will be coming out next spring. I stayed with her in D.C., so on the drive from where I live in North Carolina to D.C., I listened, I binged an entire podcast called My Dad Wrote a Porno. <laughs> so, basically... This this podcast is, and I heard about it, I think, on like pop, like NPR's uh, Pop Culture Happy Hour. But it's three British comedians. They work in like radio or media or something. And one of them, Jamie Morton's father, basically came up to him one day and said, "Hey, son, I wrote a book. Um, can you read it and tell me what you think?" And he's like, "Sure, Dad." And he got this book and realized his father had written an erotic novel called Belinda Blinked under the pseudonym Rocky Flintstone. Oh my god. <laughs> it is hilarious. So they read a chapter every week. Um, they read a chapter from Belinda Blinked and they talk about it. And it is exactly what you think this is. This is an erotic novel written by a 60-year-old Irishman and it is just it, with all its attendant awkwardness and hilarity and bad grammar and like and they read it aloud to you know to you and they discuss it and they laugh about it and and Jamie pretty much was like if it weren't for me and my three sisters I would doubt that my father have ever had ever had sex <laughs> like it's just it is so funny, um, which was a little bit dangerous when I was driving because I was literally laughing so hard at some points that I was like shaking my steering wheel. Um, so maybe don't listen to it when you're like trying to operate other machinery, but, uh, <laughs> so I binged the whole thing. Um, thankfully all of the first book, uh, had come out by the, when I was listening to this on my drive. And so now they are on to the sequel to Belinda Blinked. Um, which I cannot remember the title. They just call it Belinda Blinked 2. Um, but there's a sequel to it, and they are also doing that chapter by chapter, and they, they sort of plan to do them as Rocky releases them. It's I highly recommend it. They are very funny, very British. Um, so I... Fantastic. Um, also, not safe for work, you know, obviously, just to warn you guys. Or if you're offended or, you know, you have delicate sensibilities, I do not recommend it for you because it can get pretty raunchy but it's very 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 funny so that's my first recommendation my second one because I have to is actually Hamilton <laughs> I'm in I'm just suffering from Hamilton hangover mm -hmm. <laughs> like I thought going to see it would help like it would cure the itch but no it just made it worse <laughs> 
And they're oh, like, yeah. oh, all they want to do is just watch it again. <laughs> just, it was so, it was so good, you guys. It was so good. And I know tickets are impossible to get. Um, I mean, I had to buy mine eight months in advance, so I know how difficult tickets are to get. But if you do have a chance to see it, absolutely go see it. Uh, if it's coming to your town on tour in 2017, go buy tickets to go see it. I mean, it's so good. I actually saw Miguel Cervantes, who will be Chicago's Hamilton. Mm-hmm. That's my Hamilton. Yeah, he was mine, too. He was great. He, you know, was really wonderful. It was actually his Broadway debut, uh, but he was fantastic. Um, I also saw... I did not see Lynn or Pippa Sue who was Eliza, or Leslie Odom Jr. as Burr. Um, but I did have everybody else in the original cast, so I got to see, you know, like, David Diggs, like, two days before he left, um, and Chris Jackson and Renee Elise Goldsberry, and they're all super wonderful. But, you know, even, I think, no matter who's in these roles, it's worth going to see. It is fantastic. Bring lots of tissues, because I pretty much just, like, cried for the last 40 minutes of the play straight, just, like, nonstop tears. Um, so yeah, that, that's my other off-menu recommendation. I know it's not exactly an achievable or feasible off-menu recommendation for people, but really, if, if tickets do become available near you, Mm -hmm. or you have any opportunity to go to New York in the future, because I'm sure it will be running for years and years and years. Oh, forever. And they are, they did film the original cast, so Mm -hmm. someday, probably not for at least a year or two, but someday that will be released to the world thank goodness i can't believe you were like in the same room as david diggs because i think i would just die i yeah i mean i was like 20 feet away from david diggs and it was just like like it was like his presence is like a gut punch as soon as he shows up i was like oh i feel that (laughs) (laughs) um and he and he raps so fast like obviously he raps super quick on the album as well but in person it's so fast as to almost be incomprehensible Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. there's something about the cast album that tricks me into thinking that it's like achievable like if i just try hard enough if i just try hard enough i can do guns and ships no problem but exactly with the french accent and everything (laughs) that is 100 percent not true and someday when jj and i go on our road trip i will prove it to her um (laughs) you know but there's something about the cast album that like lulls me into thinking that that's achievable and yet i'm sure if i were to see it in person it, it would just be mind-blowing it's also if you have listened to the album before you go see the show it is almost impossible to at least not like mouth the words Mm -hmm. (laughs) as they're doing it um but it's it's so good uh i think probably my favorite numbers satisfied is amazing oh um because, you know, you have Helpless, which is from Eliza's point of view, and then Satisfied is from Eliza's point of view. But the choreography is such that everything rewinds and you see it happen again, and it just comes together in the most amazing way. So Satisfied was probably one of my favorites. And I really kind of can't talk about the second half of the musical without just, like, bursting no. into floods of tears. But no. I think the room where it happened is also fantastic. Um... And David really stole the show pretty much whenever he was on there. But his Thomas Jefferson is very, very, very funny. Um, So, yeah, like I said, 
just when you guys have a chance, just go. Or, you know, if it's in your town, if you have any ability to go to New York to see it, I mean, it's going to be there forever and ever. So just definitely, I, you know, we've, we've, we've been hyping Hamilton forever on this particular podcast, but definitely go see it. Uh-huh. So that is my off-menu recommendation for this week. All right. That's all for this week. Uh, next week, Kelly and I will be starting a series on troubleshooting various uh, editorial notes and craft revision requests that you might be getting in your manuscript, starting with the ever-popular Kill It or Murder Your Darlings. <laughs> As always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Pickle, or your podcast provider of choice. Also, if you like us, please rate and review when you get a chance, as it helps other listeners find the podcast, and it makes me really, really excited. Kelly loves loves when we get a new review. (laughs) She always lets me know when we have one, so. (laughs) If you want more pub crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also follow us on Twitter at PubCrawlBlog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at PublishingCrawl. You can follow me, JJ, at SJJones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, on Twitter or my website, sjjones.com. And you can follow me, Kelly, at BookishChick on Twitter or Instagram, or my website at penandparsley.com. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, author of Vengeance Road, available now wherever books are sold. If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com or send us an ask through Tumblr. And also, we, Kelly and I are going to be opening up another query critique. Mm-hmm. So go ahead, as we did the last time, send us an email at publishingcrawl.com, at gmail.com with the heading query critique on it. And as we did the last time, we'll pick a handful of the ones that we can we feel would be helpful for you guys, and we will critique them on air as we did the last time. So yeah. you guys seem to like that. So go ahead and send in your queries to us. Even go ahead and send in revised queries to us if you've done it before. And we we didn't get to cover it, so we're going to keep this open. We're going to talk about it for the next couple of weeks. So in about a month's time, we'll go ahead and critique some more. So thanks so much for listening. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Do 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 do